knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, setteth on fire the course of nature, and that is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Well, James takes most of this third chapter to address the issue of the tongue, and more specifically, controlling the tongue. I'm going to give you the title of what we're going to talk about tonight. I'm going to jump into some things by way of introduction, but it's spiritual maturity is controlling the tongue. Spiritual maturity is controlling the tongue, and that's one of the themes that we talked about with the book of James. The book of James is all about going on to perfection. That idea of perfection is maturity, and so to control our tongue is a sign and a... And a, and a a mark of spiritual maturity. And it would be very easy to jump right into this passage and kind of skip over the first verse and make it part of the talk about our tongue, which admittedly it does have a little bit to do with what we say uh, because it involves talking, but we'd be missing a, a very important point if we gloss over this. And so by way of introduction tonight, let me point out a few things that we find here in verse number one. It says, brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. The Greek word for master is the daskalos, and it means an authoritative instructor or a teacher, if you will. It's, it's used 39 times in the gospel. That's not the only, it's, it's used more than 39 times. In fact, it's used close to like 50 or 60 times, but uh, 39 times in the gospels in reference to Jesus Christ. It's also translated in Luke as doctor, in Acts, in Ephesians as teacher. So uh, it appears, and, and, and we can only kind of not guess, but I, I guess maybe an educated guess, if you want to call it that. But it, it appears that a lot of the professing Christians that James w is addressing here were pushing themselves into leadership positions. Um, they were maybe influenced by the Pharisees, who had, who had these, these proud ambitions to be respected as a rabbi. Uh, we, we find that all the way out through, throughout the Gospels, especially in Matthew. To be called rabbi, which is master or, or teacher. Um, Albert Barnes says this in his commentary, the evil which the apostle seems to have referred to in this chapter was a desire which appears to have prevailed among those to whom he wrote to be public teachers and to be such even where there was no proper qualification. So he says, be not many masters. Well, James gives really in, in this first verse two reasons for being careful about assuming the office of leadership. And the first one is this, leaders will be judged more strictly. So what he says at the end of that verse, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And again, it's very easy to just gloss over that. What is he talking about? Oh, well, we'll just go ahead and talk about the tongue. 
knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. That refers to the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A leader has greater authority than those who are not leaders, but he also has a greater responsibility and a greater account that he's going to give to God for what he did with that leadership and what he did with that responsibility and what he did with that authority. So the word condemnation, uh, it refers to a decision for or against. It's often translated judgment. So church leaders are going to give account for their lives. They're, they're supposed to be examples to the believers, and we're going to stand before God, and I say we're, those who are in leadership are going to give an account to God for how they handled that leadership and how they handled uh, that responsibility of example. Uh, church leaders are going to give an account for rightly dividing the Word of God, we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, for their doctrine, for their preaching, for all of those different things, and, 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 and the list goes on and on and on of the, of the responsibility that those in leadership have to, to God first, but then also to the church. So we're going to give account for how they watch for the souls of the saints in Hebrews chapter 13, for preaching the whole counsel of God in Acts chapter 20, for how they feed and guard the flock also in Acts chapter 20, for how they warn those who are erring from the faith in, second, uh, in Titus chapter 1. So, uh, you know, sometimes it, it may look easy, it may look fun to, to, to people in the crowd. You know, sometimes you might say, well, I want to I wanna be able to get up there and tell everybody what I think they ought to do. Uh, you know, um, it's, trust me, that's, it's, not, uh, it's not what I'm doing when I get up here, right? There's a lot of times when I'm like, man, I know I need to say that, but I don't want to. I don't want to have to preach this, but it's in the Bible and I need to preach it. Uh, in, in, in a moment, James is going to tell us just exactly what we should be focusing on and worrying about in relation to our tongue. But for the moment, this, this little parentheses here, if you will, he, he, he shares with us is, is very important. Those who would exert mastery over others via their tongues are going to be held in a higher standard. Turn over to, keep your finger there in, in, in James chapter 3. We're, we're going to come back to that all night. So if you turn anywhere, put a bookmark or something there. But turn over to Luke chapter 12. Because for leaders, there's a higher standard of controlling the tongue. The higher standard of controlling your life. There's a higher standard of responsibility for the effect of what we say. There's a higher standard to be correct in what you're saying. Right? If you're just having a conversation with somebody and it's just two, two guys, you know, uh, uh, shooting the breeze or whatever else, doesn't matter. Well, I think this. Well, I think this. If it comes from somebody that's in a position of leadership or a position of authority, it doesn't mean like it's coming from God, but it carries more weight. And people are going to, you know, especially if you're talking about biblical things, uh, and, and I guess probably only if you're talking about biblical things, uh, they're going to take what you say as, as coming from a position of authority. So, you know, what you say as a leader really matters, and it has consequences, and you have a responsibility before God to make sure that you're getting those things right before you just shoot from the hip about something. Leaders influence, so if they, if they go wrong, the, the influence of that wrong is greater. Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Here it is, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. So, very, very important here, number one, that leaders are going to be judged more strictly. But the second thing that James gets across here in this verse is that we're sinners, and we all do things that cause offense. Right? He says in verse number two, as we're kind of getting into this, but he says, for in many things we offend all. Who is he? He's, he if, you, if you're carrying that thought over from verse number one, 
Offend is the Greek word that means, according to Barnes, to stumble, to fall, then to err, to fail in duty. One commentator wrote it this way, believers, though they may not actually fall, often stumble. The fact that we're all sinners should cause a man to assume the office of leadership in a church only with great fear and trembling, with, with, with humility, with complete dependency upon God and His help. The fact that we are all sinners should be a constant reminder to, to a church leader that he's not special in relation to being above sin, that he's going to give account to God for his life and for his ministry. God's not a respecter of persons. Right? He called Moses a friend David, a man after God's own heart. But that didn't mean that he was going to gloss over their mistakes. Right? It didn't mean that he, wasn't going to, that he was just going to let it pass because, well, he's a man after God's own heart. Or he's a friend of God. No, he, he pointed their sins out, and, and in some ways, especially with David, even more than most people. Right? He's not a respecter person. So the fact that we are all sinners should be a constant reminder to the church leader of the power of the tongue and of the necessity of guarding that speech with, with great care. Barnes again said, if anywhere the improper use of the tongue will do mischief, it's in the office of a religious teacher. And to show the danger of this and the importance of caution in seeking that office, the apostle proceeds to show what mischief the tongue is capable of effecting. And certainly, you know, this, we're talking about the position of leadership in a church when it comes to the pastor, but if, if you're a teacher, then you are in that position of leadership too. Maybe not on the scale of the whole church, but in that class, you're, you are in a position of leadership, and there are people that are under you that are looking up to you. And honestly, the same thing could be said of a position of leadership in the home, the husband especially, but even the wife. You have that responsibility. It's, it's a greater responsibility when you are put into a position of leadership. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6. I say also that the fact that we're, we're sinners should also be a constant reminder to the leader, particularly the church leader, to be merciful and patient with others. Now, that doesn't mean that sin ought to be overlooked. We, have to, we, we cannot overlook sin, but we must maintain a kind and a humble manner when we're dealing with that sin. Because the thing is, at the end of the day, you know, if... if and I'm so thankful that we have not had a huge issue that we've had to deal with here. But it would break my heart to have to do that. It's not something I'm like, oh, I get to exercise my authority over this person. I get to push them into the ground. No, it breaks your heart when somebody goes the wrong direction and when somebody does the wrong thing. I mean, how, how, how else can you approach that than with humility? Because I know that that very easily could be me. And if I have that in my mind when I'm approaching somebody else about an error error that they're, that they're you know, committing or something that they're doing wrong, I can't help but approach it with humility. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry to even have to tell you this. I don't even want to bring this to your attention because I'm not, trust me, I'm not trying to say that I'm better than you when I'm coming to you about this. That's the attitude that we ought to have. That's the attitude that we ought to approach that with. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. He's basically saying that exact same thing. You better approach him in a spirit of meekness, because you're about to get knocked off your pedestal. <laughs> that could be you, and it could be you tomorrow. And how do you want people to treat you when you're the one that's gotten knocked down a level or two? 
That's exactly what he's talking about. So the fact that we are all sinners should also be a warning to the church leaders about the danger of hypocrisy. James warned about that in Ma- uh, Jesus warned about that. Sorry, in Matthew chapter seven, Paul warned about it in Romans chapter two. So a lot of a lot of uh, things there that that um, that we ought to be considering as as church leaders. But James is emphasizing the point that we cannot over, overstate the importance of having God called spiritually qualified leaders in the church. Paul warned Timothy not to be hasty in ordaining somebody, right? He gave strict qualifications in 1 Timothy and in Titus for, for a pastor and for a leader, for deacons even. But there's, there's a lot of truth to the saying that everything rises and falls on leadership. And if leadership is not right, then, then it's very easy for the church to follow after that leadership and be wrong in a lot of those things as well. The church is going to be greatly hindered in accomplishing God's will if the leadership is not right. And I'll be honest with you, that's what we're seeing in a lot of churches today. The leadership is moving people away, right? What happens? What happens in a church when the leadership stops dressing up for church, when the leadership starts you know, letting the music slide, when the leadership starts doing all of these other things? Most people are not going to stand up and say, that's wrong, we need to stop doing that. Most people are just going to say, man, I've been waiting to get away with this for a while. I don't like wearing a tie to church anyway, right? I've, I've been listening to this music in my car for the last five years. About time we started putting it in the church, right? The only thing that keeps them straight is the leadership. So it's very, very important that the leadership stay straight. That everything does rise and fall with leadership. And it, it was the rise of the unqualified leaders who were operating contrary to the apostolic doctrine in this time that even, let the, you know, that, that uh, led... Peter and Paul and James to write a lot of the things that they were talking about, uh, that they wrote about in the New Testament, but it's also a lot of that apostasy that led to the Roman Catholic Church in the early centuries, right? It was, it was doctrine that moved away, led by the leaders, that was never corrected, and that essentially led to the Roman Catholic Church. So this, that same era has led to the apostasy of, of countless congregations and and groups of congregation throughout the course of the year since the time of Jesus Christ. So very, very important. And this is a warning to men not to push themselves into leadership. It, it, should, be, it should be entered into with, with a holy fear, with caution. Make sure this is what God wants you to do. Make sure this is something that God is calling you to do. Uh, you've got to be certain that, it, that you are fulfilling uh, God's will and that you're fulfilling the qualifications being aware that it's a great responsibility that we're going to give an account to God for. Paul says the elders at Ephesus had been made overseers by the Holy Spirit. It was, it was God that called them to do that work. And that's a, it's a very, very important thing. So the, this first, first verse is not separated from the rest of the passage, but I think a lot of times it gets overlooked in an attempt to just get to the rest of the passage. But now that we've taken a couple minutes on verse number one, let's, let's move on to the rest of these verses and see what they have to teach us about controlling our tongue. The first thing is this. Control of the tongue is a mark of spiritual maturity. And that's kind of the overriding thought, but he really introduces that, uh, that overriding thought by mentioning that right there in verse number two. That's the title of the whole study tonight, but James begins his thought by telling us that the mark of maturity to control, uh, or it is a mark of maturity to control what we say. Verse number two, for in many things we offend all, but here he goes. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. That word perfect does not mean, as we've discussed, sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're never going to sin. That word perfect uh, means a, a man who is, in this context, 
And, and every word in the Bible has to be defined by the context, but in this context, it means somebody that is able to bridle the whole body, somebody that is, that is moved to a level of maturity that they can actually handle and control their tongue. That's what he's saying. If, you can, if any man offend not in word, or if you, don't, if you don't give any offense in the way that you speak, then you're a perfect man. You are a mature man. So that is a sign or a mark of maturity, is being able to control what you say. In James chapter 1 and verse 4, perfect, as we talked about all, all the way back at, and near the beginning, identified or defined, if you will, as entire or complete, refers to spiritual maturity. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17 says, perfect is to be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Colossians 4.12, perfect is to be complete in the will of God. Hebrews 13.21, perfect is doing every good work according to God's will. So, in other words, in this passage here, if you can control your tongue, you can control the rest of your body and your character. So, he's speaking of, of one of those marks of maturity being that we're not going to offend in word. A mature Christian doesn't, and there's so many verses, so many verses in the Bible that speak about our tongues and our speech. Um, and, and our thoughts being put into speech. But the, a mature Christian does not speak corruptly, Ephesians chapter 5. Doesn't speak deceitfully, Ephesians chapter 4. Doesn't speak hurtfully, Proverbs chapter 12. Doesn't speak foolishly, Proverbs 15. Doesn't speak hastily, Proverbs 29. So how you control your tongue indicates the self-control that you have over uh, the other areas of your life. And if you can learn to control your tongue, you can learn to control any part of you. The second thing that James says is this, how you control your tongue is associated with control of the whole body. We mentioned that, but, but he kind of gives a, a little bit more of an explanation of that. He says at the end of verse number two, and able also to bridle the whole body. <coughs> so here, in the next two verses, he gives us two examples to illustrate what he's talking about. Verse number three, behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. So we, we control the bit, the bit controls the horse, the tongue controls that huge body, it makes us the master, right? And then he says in verse 4, behold also the ships, which though they be so great are and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. So the second example then is the rudders on a ship, very, very tiny compared to how big the ship is. Uh, a ship is very large in proportion to the rudder. On a ship, the ship is influenced by a lot of powerful forces from the outside. Like he mentions like the wind is driven of fierce winds, and, and, but that little tiny rudder can still turn that ship wherever the, wherever the captain uh, wants to turn it. It can still be kept under control, and it doesn't matter what the outside forces may be that are acting upon you. You can control your tongue. That's what he's saying. If you can control this tongue, then you can control the body. And that's why it's very important to think before speaking and to be yielded to the Holy Spirit's control in your life. Back in James chapter 1 and verse number 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Peter, very prone to speaking too quickly. Uh, we, we laugh about it a lot of times. And he, he, you know, um, just the fact that he put his foot in his mouth so often. But he sinned greatly with his mouth on the eve of Christ's crucifixion, right? He learned the wisdom of controlling the tongue. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 10, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Pretty interesting that Peter, obviously, 
Took him a little while longer maybe than it takes some others, but he moved on to that maturity of being able to control his tongue. And he said, if you want to live a long life and you want to see good days, then control your mouth, basically, is what he's saying. Uh, a lot of other verses in the Bible that speak of the importance of controlling the tongue. Matthew Henry said this, the more quick and lively the tongue is, the more should we thus take care to govern it. Otherwise, as an unruly and ungovernable horse runs away with his rider or throws him, so an unruly tongue will serve those in like manner who have no command over it. Number three, corrupt speech has great destructive power. Verse number five, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and that is set on fire of hell. Size does not determine its importance. If, if size determined the importance, then the tongue would be one of the least important things because it's very, very small. And that's what he says. Even so, the tongue is a little member. James uses some pretty powerful metaphors in these verses, though. You look back through verse 5, 6, he says a fire. So the world of iniquity, the fire of hell, and unruly evil. If, if you drop down a couple verses later in verse 8, he calls it uh, full of deadly poison. He said it's a little member, but it can do a whole lot of damage. Just like a, a, a little match. I mean, how many times have you seen these forest fires that, that just destroyed millions of acres that were started by a little match? Somebody lit it on fire, or even just, you know, compared to the size, a little campfire or something like that, and destroys millions of acres. This tiny, tiny little thing is able to do so much damage. And the effects of the tongue run very deep and can be extremely destructive. In fact, there's a lot of verses, again, that we could look at, but let's, let's just look at two of them. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. The effect of the tongue runs very, very deep. Verse number 8, Proverbs 18 and verse 8, the words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Well, that cuts deep. Ever been cut deep by a talebearer? Look a couple, couple chapters over in Proverbs 26. And this goes right along with the theme of what James is talking about with the tongue being a fire and, and able to destroy so much. But he says in, in Proverbs 26 and verse 20, Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Think about how many families and friendships and, and reputations and churches and even nations have been destroyed by criticism and evil speaking and backbiting and lies. The tongue is a world of iniquity, James says. That's what he's talking about. It does so much harm. We see a lot of verses throughout the Bible that talk about the destruction from the tongue. How many people have been put to death because a witness lied about them? Told, told, you know, be, they, they were a false witness and somebody died because of it. Backbiting and, and hateful criticism can consume churches. The words of false teachers. I mean, they can, they can subvert an entire church, entire family, and on and on the list could go. The effect of the tongue runs very deep, but it also can run very wide. Uh, a man came to Charles Spurgeon one night in his hotel room, and he wanted to, wanted to apologize to him for slandering him. He had said some things about him, and it actually had gotten back to, to Spurgeon, some of these things that this guy had said, and, 
and he felt bad about it, so he wanted to go and apologize. And so he went up to his room, and he knocked on the door, and of course, Spurgeon uh, let him in. He wanted to talk to him one-on-one and, and, and apologize for what he said, and, and, and Spurgeon said, of course, I forgive you, but before you go, I want you to do me a favor. He said, go, go take that, that, uh, that feather pillow off of my bed there. I want you to walk over to the window and rip that pillow open and just dump all the feathers outside for me. This guy was like, okay, I mean, it is kind of a strange request, but if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. So he walked over to the window and he dumped all those pillows out of the, uh, all those feathers out of that pillow. And Spurgeon said, all right, now what I want you to do is go down and pick all those feathers up. They said, that's impossible. I mean, they must be blocks away by now. It's windy outside. There's feathers everywhere. And he said, exactly. And that's the same effect that your words have when you throw them out there and they get out in the wind. You cannot go back and take it all back. You can't go back and put it all back together. You can try to make it right, but you're never going to be able to put it back the way that it was. And so the effect of the tongue can run very, very wide. And, and I'll be honest, you know, what we see here in verse number five is that pride is the root cause. He said, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Proverbs tells us what's in the heart is going to come out of the mouth. It's eventually going to come out. You're eventually going to say what's in there. It tells us that there's a rod of pride in the mouth of the foolish. That's what Proverbs says. A proud man is known by his arrogant and angry manner of speaking. And then in verse 6, we see this again, that corrupt speech defiles the entire body. As we already mentioned, if we can't control our tongue, we have no self-control anywhere else either. Matthew Henry said this, there's a great pollution and defilement in the sins of the tongue. Defiling passions are kindled, vented, and cherished by this unruly member, and the whole body is often drawn into sin and guilt by the tongue. Therefore, Solomon says, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Brings us to number four. The tongue cannot be tamed by man. James chapter 3 and verse number 7. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't control your tongue. It, it, it means you can't tame your tongue in your own power. But the tongue can be tamed by God. Think about, think about a, a wild animal being tamed. You take a lion or a tiger and you tame that thing, the majority of them will never be tamed, but you can take one and you can train it to be tamed, right? You can, take, you can train it to, to do certain things. You can train it to sit or, or go over there when you tell it to go over there. It can be, it can be tamed, um, but you should never turn your back on it, right? Uh, I don't know how those lion tamers get in the cages with those. And, and, and it happens, seems like fairly often, that those lions or those tigers or whatever turn on the lion tamer, and the next thing you know, he's clamped in their jaws, he's, you know, he's got his, half his leg ripped off or something, and it was a tame lion, but a lion was not meant to be tamed. It's very, very difficult to tame a lion, and what happens if you turn that lion back out into the wild? He's wild. He's going to go back into the wild. He's not going to be, he's, he's going to go back to doing what wild animals do, because he's, it's, it was not meant to be tamed. Its nature is going to take over. And it would mostly go back to being a wild animal. And the, and the, and the tongue is the same way. It, you, it can be tamed by you being born again and by being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It can be tamed by laying aside the old man and putting on the new man through the effectual power of the Holy Spirit. 
But don't ever get to a certain point in self-control of your tongue where you think you can just relax and now I don't need to worry about it anymore. First Peter tells us to be sober and be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And one of the easiest ways for him to do that is through our tongue. James goes on then to illustrate the unruly nature of even the Christian's tongue. Verse number nine, therefore bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. James is, is not saying that it's not possible for a true believer to speak good and evil. He's, he's made it very clear in this passage that man's heart is evil and that this evil is reflected in his speech. When a sinner is born again, that fallen nature doesn't go away. It's, we fight against it. We're new creatures, but that old nature is still there and we still have to fight against it. But he's saying a fountain of fresh water doesn't issue forth salt and sweet water at the same time. But a redeemed man has two fountains within him, the old man and the new man. We find that in Ephesians chapter 4. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go look at those. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the same thing. A fig tree is only going to produce figs, right? But a redeemed man can produce both the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. We have that ability uh, just because of the nature of, of us. Well, we see that in Peter's life. The same tongue, the same tongue, he blessed Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God and then turned around and, and, and denied him all within the matter of just a, 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 a few short days, right? The same tongue did that. James is saying that these things ought not to be so. He's not saying that they can't be. He's saying that they ought not to be. To speak both good and evil, blessing and curse is not God's will and it has to be the goal of every child of God to speak only good, only righteousness, only truth. That's the, that's, that is the mark of maturity. When we get to that point, that's what he's talking about with being a perfect man. We're inconsistent at best. We're, we're humans. But that in, inconsistency is not excusable. That, that inconsistency would never be allowed in other things. He talked about that in verse number 11. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. So since they wouldn't be allowed in anything else, we shouldn't allow them from our tongues either, right? A, a, a fig tree is not going to have olives and figs growing on it. It's just an, it's an inconsistency that we don't find in nature. A, 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 a water fountain is not going to have fresh water and, and salt water coming out of the same source. It's just it's an inconsistency. He's saying, don't you understand that it's... It's an inconsistency for you to be a Christian and have evil things and good things come out of the same mouth. That They ought not to be so, he says. It, you should be putting out only good things. So it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to control your tongue. And we're talking about the idea that James, one of the themes of James is spiritual maturity, but it's also active faith. Our faith is, is going to produce good works. And we, we spent a lot of time talking about that last week. So a, a passive faith is going to say, I can't do that. It's too hard. It's beyond my ability to do that. But an active, mature faith, like we've been talking about, is going to claim God's help and then set about the task of actively controlling your speech. It's so necessary because of the destructive power of the tongue. Boys, as, as, uh, as, as bad as the effects are in a workplace of somebody, you know, 
stabbing somebody else in the back to try to climb the ladder or any of those other things that go on. It ought, to, it ought to just give you a reminder of how important it is that the things we say in and around and to the people in our church is so important. You have the ability to, to destroy a church. You really do. Any, any single one person can destroy a church with the things that, they're saying, that, that, that they say. It's so necessary. I'd hate to stand before God someday and have to admit that I destroyed a church that Jesus Christ gave his life for because I couldn't control my tongue. I'd hate to have to stand before God how ashamed I'll be if I have to admit to God that I let it defile my whole body because I couldn't tame my tongue by claiming God's help and, and asking for his strength and his power in controlling my tongue. So the, in, this, the inconsistency with the tongue is inexcusable, but with God's help, we can all develop the spiritual maturity of controlling the tongue. It's so important. It's so important. It's a tiny, tiny little thing to how necessary it is that we make sure that we control, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the tongue, because it can do so much damage if we don't. What a great reminder James gives us here in James chapter 3 in this first part. We'll get into the next part uh, uh, next, well, actually not next week. It's going to be a few weeks before we do that, so... Um, I'm, I'm very excited about, uh, you know, I don't, I don't go, I, I, in fact, I think in the, since we've, since we've been here seven years as a church, I don't, we haven't missed very many Sundays. I don't like being gone on Sunday, and the only time I've missed more than, more than one has been for a mission trip. Went to Romania, I think, in 2019, and then Belize uh, last year, the year before. Um, I, but, but I feel so confident to be able to leave the church in the hands of, of uh, all of you. And I've uh, got a lot, of, a lot of men that are planning to, to preach and uh, people that are going to lead singing and, and do all of that stuff. So give you, give you a great opportunity to do those things, but also I, I don't have any problem leaving because I know that, that, uh, that it's taken care of. And uh, trying to be a help to Brother Nitton over there and uh, just tremendous opportunity. Let me mention this and then we'll pray and we'll be done. Um, we're going, to be, we're going to be conducting six different meetings that we're doing while we're there, and um, one of the, two of them are going to be, well, three of them are going to be in the first week. Um, we, we leave on Sunday night. We get there on Tuesday morning. That's, that's how long the flight is and losing time and everything else. By the way, we're going to be 10 and a half hours ahead, so just trying to figure it out. New Delhi, if you have the little, uh, the little uh, clock on your, on your phone, if you type in New Delhi, that'll give you the time of, of where he's at, but... Um, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, no, I take that back, Wednesday, Wednesday, uh, he's got four villages that he preaches in, and uh, two of them are going to be combined, so there'll be 50 or 60 people there in one of those villages on Wednesday, and we'll be preaching to them, and then on Friday, we're going to do the same thing with two more of those villages, and it'll be 50 or 60 people, and the majority of them will not be saved. Um, a huge majority of them will not be saved. So it's a great opportunity. And then that following Sunday is the anniversary service, uh, the first anniversary. He's expecting somewhere around 150 people to be there. And again, most of them will not be saved. So uh, just a tremendous opportunity and really be praying about that. You know, if, if, if one person gets saved, and especially if one person and has a family and is able to, you know, he's able to disciple them and, and, and uh, get them into the church. I mean, that's, that's what they need. They need families. And so uh, be praying for, for those three. And then we're going up to Mumbai, um, which is by car, like 20 hours. So we're flying up there. 
there's a pastor friend of his that's up in that area that I've met before, but they're expecting about 150 or 200 people there for that service. Um, and some of them will be saved, uh, some of them will not, so it's kind of like a combined meeting there. And then uh, we come back and we'll have their services on Sunday, um, preaching to their people. And then Sunday evening, the second Sunday that we're there, um, which is the Sunday right before we come home, they're having like a youth rally type thing. And he said they're expecting somewhere around 40 or 50 kids for that. And again, the huge majority of them will not be saved. So uh, tremendous opportunities that we have to preach to them and uh, to see people get saved. And that's what, that's what we need to see more than anything, not, you know, not just for the sake of being able to do it, but especially for, for them and their outreach and the opportunities that they have there. So uh, be praying for that. Uh, be praying for safety. Um, it's, there is, like I said, it's not a huge threat of, of um, persecution necessarily. It's part of the country now, but it could pop up anywhere. And so uh, we do need the Lord's protection, and it's not, not something we're taking for granted. So uh, be praying about that. Six, six opportunities we have to give out the gospel in, in, you know, to, to large numbers of people. That Almost every one of those crowds will be different. So uh, be praying for that if, if you, you know, as you as you think about it throughout the weeks that we're gone, all right? Tuesday is the pie and praise, um, and, then, and then Sunday, and then uh, um, l- let me just give you a couple things. I know Brian's going to be announcing these as well, but just to kind of give you the layout. The Wednesday that we get back, we get back on, we leave at 3 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, and we get back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because we gain all that time and everything else. And then that's, that Wednesday night is when we're going to be decorating the, the whole auditorium for Christmas. We have kind of like little Christmas, you know, snacks and all of that kind of stuff. And then the following Sunday is our Sunday school breakfast that we always do every year. So uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be happening, and, and, and I'll be trying to do as many things as I can from there to, to uh, just help everybody be reminded about all of that stuff. But um, you're in good hands, all right? So... Um, looking forward to what the Lord's going to do over there in India. So let's just be praying about that. All right, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for an opportunity we have to meet here tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the truths that we can gain from it. And God, I do pray that you would protect our church from anything coming in from the outside or in anything even more so, I guess, from the inside that, that would cause uh, harm to, to your body. And God, I pray that you'd help each one of us to learn to control our, our tongues and to, uh, to have that maturity, to, to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit in that area. God, may you be pleased by what we do here, by what we say, by the fellowship and by everything that happens. And I do pray for uh, this, this trip. And uh, the opportunities that we'll have to share the gospel, God, I do pray that we'd see souls get saved. I pray that, that uh, you just bless Brother Nitton and Miss Neha, and their efforts there to reach those people. There's no doubt that you've called them. And so, God, I pray that you would just uh, encourage them uh, by helping them see people come to know you as their Savior and grow in Christ. Thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.